Hello and welcome to Coffee House Shots, the Spectator's daily politics podcast. I'm Isabel Hardman and this is the Sunday Roundup. Michelle O'Neill made history this week as she became Northern Ireland's first nationalist first minister. Speaking to David Blevins on Sky News, she described herself as a proud Republican, but also said she wants to be a unifier. Blevins asked her about her ambitions for Irish unity. You've assumed this office, but it's basically on the basis of a deal between the UK government and the DUP. And in that deal, on page 68, it says, on the basis of all recent polling, the government sees no realistic prospect of a border poll leading to a united Ireland, that Northern Ireland's future in the UK will be secure for decades to come. Your party leader says a united Ireland is within touching distance. Decades are touching distance. Which is it? Well, firstly, I believe I'm in the post of First Minister because I received a mandate from the public. They returned me to be elected to this post. And therefore, I regret the fact that for two years, the DUP stayed out of these institutions and we weren't able to deal with the day-to-day issues, public services, the fact that so many of our public sector workers had to go out onto the picket lines. But thankfully, they've made the right call now. They've decided to come back in and I welcome that. I welcome that we now have power share and once again restored. And we've got a very large in-tray of work to get down to in terms of health and education right across all of the portfolios. But certainly, I mean, I I read the words in the command paper, uh, which has been put out to, I don't know, to wrap around the two pieces of legislation that were tabled in Westminster. But I would absolutely contest what the British government have said in that document insofar as my election uh, to the post of First Minister demonstrates the change that's happening on this island. And that's a good thing. It's a healthy thing because this change, I think, can benefit us all. So when Mary Lou MacDonald talks about um, that it is within touching distance, I believe that we are in the decade of opportunity. And I believe also equally that we can do two things at once. We can have power sharing. We can make it stable. We can work together every day in terms of public services. And whilst we also pursue our equally legitimate um, aspirations, and I made that clear in the speech today. Education Secretary Gillian Keegan spoke to Trevor Phillips on Sky News about her pledge to provide new free childcare hours. Phillips asked Keegan if she could guarantee her pledge would be met. Let let me take you to the other end, if I may, of the educational um, ladder. You've made a promise to provide care for children down to nine months old and you're offering £1,000 golden hello to recruit more childcare workers. Uh, But the providers say that you're going to need something like 100,000 extra staff over the next two years to meet that promise. Now, can you guarantee that this September, every parent to whom you've made that promise of childcare down to nine months old will find a place... Well, obviously what we're doing is working to make sure that we deliver a plan to provide that. So when we put the plan in place in the first place, we've put several stages and deliverability has been at the key of that, making sure that... April, which is the first increase of 15 hours uh, for working parents for two-year-olds, that we have more staff in place for that. And then the next tranche is September, that we have more staff in place for that. And then uh, the final um, large piece of delivery is September 2025. So deliverability has been at at the heart of the plans. Last year, we recruited net over 13,000 new people into the sector. So we just need to keep going at that rate to be able to deliver. I hear that, but for parents who are watching, they will have heard me ask you the question, will you guarantee 
that there are places for everybody in September? And the word I didn't hear in that answer is yes. Well, obviously, what I'm doing right now is sitting and making sure that we provide uh, all of the, 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 the resources that we need, whether it's capital to grow the places, whether it's... Um, you know, workforce to grow the places and okay. to make sure that we have all that together. Right now, you know, what you can't do, Trevor, which I think you probably know, is guaranteeing something in the future that you're not in control of all the bits. But what well, I will say is we are but, working to make sure that that offer, which I know parents but, are absolutely desperate for, and I look, know is our government is the you, only government that you, is determined to deliver it, you, but to you, make sure that we can deliver it. I've delivered many things well, in my, the, the, in my so, career. Sorry, Secretary of State, but here's the problem. You, you can't say you have get made the promise that you will provide this and then now say, I can't guarantee it. Why did you make the promise in I'm the very, first place? I'm very, Most very confident. parents think that you have made this promise. Yes, I, I think you're trying to pick on semantics. When you're delivering a project, no, and I've delivered many saying... things... Will you let me finish, Trevor? When you deliver a project, and I've delivered many things in a long business career, what you do is you put plans in place to make sure you can. Obviously, guaranteeing something in the future is something that you can never do. All you can do is put all the plans in place and then react if you need to. But I am very, very confident that we have got in place both the capital and the workforce and all the incentives and also the flexibilities, plus three new apprenticeships into the profession with more flexibility for career progression up to degree level in this profession as well. I'm really confident that all the things that we've done will mean that every parent who wants to have a place is, 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 is going to have a place. But what you're asking me is to personally guarantee something on behalf of, you know, thousands, tens of thousands of businesses that are working out there to grow the yeah. capacity and to make sure that we've got, um, we've got the people in place. The plan in the first place, we thought very hard about this, was in terms of, you know, stepping up the plan. That's why we have 15, 15 hours for a, a, a group of the two-year-olds of working but, parents. Then we go on to younger children and then we increase the hours. And we do that me, over a period second. of time. Esther Jai, the mother of murdered teenager Brianna Jai, gave an interview with Laura Koonsberg in which she called for more stringent restrictions from the government to protect children from harmful content online. Koonsberg asked Gillian Keegan about Jai's suggestion that under-13s only have access to child-safe mobile phones. What she's talking about is something more radical that yes. I think a lot of parents watching might think, actually, yes, why don't we consider this? Why don't we do this? Why don't we make a child-safe mobile phone or ban under-16s from using social media apps? Well, there are child-safe mobile phones available. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think the problem is, and I think it's something that... Um, that many parents will recognise is, um, you know, the children are wanting to keep up with their peers and, you know, there's certain groups of parents that sort of all try to agree, we, you know, we won't allow children to have this phone before this age and then they put particular software on there. But it is actually a lot of it is the... Is, is, is a massive change uh, over this. Over that's this. why some parents believe the government needs to act because it is impossible for them to do it on their own. Yes, which is why we have acted with the Online Safety Act. That is, that is a massive piece of mm -hmm. legislation, um, probably quite a leading position um, that we've taken in really making sure that the, the platforms 
are accountable for proper age verification and for appropriate things being on uh, and available and inappropriate things, most importantly, not being there. So that act, as, as we've said, is only just starting, although the regulators uh, obviously means that people will start to, to, to alter their position. But are you saying, though, then, that actually what has to happen is wait and see what the new law does and you will not, at this stage, consider something more radical? Like banning well, it's, social it media is quite radical 16s. to ban phones, smartphones from, from under 16s. So I, I think that is quite radical. Even banning it in schools, um, you know, is quite a quite a big step. But that just shows just how much we know, we know and understand that this is really worrying to parents. It's worrying also in terms of, you know, the development of children, then building friendships, then building those, um, you know, those social relationships in school as well. Um, it, it is a worry because it's something that's relatively new, not something we ever had to deal with, not something the generation, last generation of parents, it's relatively new, so it is a worry. But I think the, the steps that we've taken, they have yet to be seen by parents, so, so, so I think our we have to live them. You're saying, wait, wait and see, nothing more radical on uh, that for now. I, I think the banning on mobile phones in schools mm -hmm. is something that we will be putting guidance on. But is that out. really happening? Because I can also well, hear lots of people shouting at the TV, thinking, well, there's plenty of phones in the playground where my kid goes to school. That's true. That's, so we haven't done it yet, but we're putting the guidance together now, which we'll then consult on. So that is something that's, that we've still got to come as well. And Trevor Phillips asked to Labour's Chris Bryant about a report in The Observer that Labour was scaling back pledges to make their policies bomb-proof to Tory attacks. In particular, Phillips questioned whether Labour were changing their mind on reforming the House of Lords. I know you. I know you have given us some limited time, so I just want to ask you about something else. It's reported this morning that you are planning to water down your commitment to reform the House of Lords. Is that true? So I think you're, this is a, a report from the Observer, which uh, was not briefed by the Labour Party, has, was never put to the Labour Party before it appeared in the newspaper. Look. Um, as with every single thing that we are going to bring forward in our manifesto in the general election, whenever that general election is finally called by Rishi Sunak, um, we want to be a credible government. And that doesn't mean that you can make everything happen on day one. Some things happen, have to happen in, in year two or year three but, or year four. Um, but if so, I, no, we are not watering down. We are absolutely committed if I, to a proper House of Lords that um, is, is not... Um, that, constituted as it presently is, but you've got to lay out proper powers between the two houses. You've got to right. um, get rid of the hereditary peers. So, uh, yes, we do want okay. to bring about change, but the, the question is, how can you be a credible government that has a plan that lays it All out right. stage by stage? Finally, the UK and US conducted a further large-scale wave of strikes on Saturday, after which the Houthis have vowed to respond. Government spokespeople have started talking about degrading Houthi military capabilities rather than deterring them. Telegraph associate editor and British Army veteran Dominic Nichols suggested there was no obvious end to the UK's involvement in the conflict. The government said this was the third strike, or this was the third wave of strikes mm. that the UK have taken uh, part um, alongside US allies, supported by many others in the international community. Well, where does it end? If they're not deterred, and if you're now going after to degrade and disrupt, where does that end? I asked the Defence Secretary two or three weeks ago at his Lancaster House speech, I said, how... How, how much deterrence is enough? How do you know what's your measure of, of, of effectiveness? How do you know when they've been deterred? 
And he said, well, you know, it's not about numbers. And I said, well, it kind of is. Because, if, <laughs> you know, is one missile from the Houthis against the ship in the Red Sea, is that... I asked him what the acceptable level of violence was. Is one missile a week acceptable? Three? Five? Fifty? You know, where do you draw the line? And, of course, it's not a hard and fast line, it's, but it's, it's somewhere between one and a hundred. And at the moment, the Houthis don't seem to be deterred. And in terms of degrading and disrupting, well, if they are supported by Iran and Iran want to continue to do that, then this has no, no obvious ending. That's all for this week. I'm Isabel Hardman and this podcast was produced by Joe Bidell Brill. Don't forget to subscribe to the Coffeehouse Shots podcast on the iTunes store. And if you enjoyed this podcast, do subscribe to our daily Evening Blend email. It's a free roundup of all the political news each day, along with analysis and a diary on what to expect next. Just go to spectator.co.uk forward slash blend. Thanks for listening and do join us again next week.